Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, come now and grow our faith. Come and deepen our hope and strengthen our love. And come and water within each of us the desire to be your faithful family forever. Amen. A hardened uh, journalist, newspaper editor of the Times in London, nearing the end of his career, said the following, if the world is to be saved, it will be saved by the spirit. Politicians or soldiers or business people or even authors and artists are not the essential people. We need saints. We need saints. Now there's a stereotype of a saint, isn't there? When we think of the word saint, a goody-goody. Someone who avoids this and avoids that and avoids this and avoids that and avoids this and avoids that. Stereotype of a, of a saint. But saints seldom look like saints. That's the first thing we need to learn about saints. Saints seldom look like saints. J Jesus, the great saint, doesn't look like the Son of God. The Son of God will never look like the Son of God. That's the mystery. I think saints, we uh, often only discover after the fact. Only discover after the fact. It's a bit like I, I remember for the first time learning that the the stars that we can see in the sky might well have already ceased to exist because of how long it takes for light to travel to reach us, that they could be thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of miles away, light years away, that in fact they may no longer exist, but we see their light. Sometimes saints, the light of saints, are only seen long after they've existed. Sometimes it's when someone dies that it's, that it's at their death we discover their sainthood in our life, which up until that point we, we could not see. Saints do not seek sainthood. They don't have an Instagram account. 
They're not concerned or interested whether anyone would call them a saint. And they'd most likely resist the title. Saints know they are not perfect. But that doesn't stop them offering their sense of insignificance to the greater good. It doesn't paralyze them that they're not perfect. It's the little boy who says, I know there's 5,000, but I've got some lunch here. And offers this insignificant gift in the whole. Knowing that somehow it will not be wasted, and perhaps even they may believe that it might be multiplied. Saints are often people who we say the following about, either in their life or after they have lived. We say they live before their time, which is obviously nonsense. No one lives before their time. They live in their time. What we really should be saying is they lived unbound to the logic of their time. They were not bound by the logic of their time. They could live in the now according to a different logic, a different reasoning that we were yet to work out the arithmetic of. And in that way, they draw the future into the present. Saints are down to earth. They, true saints live in the messiness of life. Their, their hands are dirty, their, their feet are tired, their hearts are broken, their eyes are, are weepy. And yet, when we spend time in their earthy presence, all, all we long for are the heavens. One consistent trait of saints is that they live with less than they could live with. A saint is someone always, consistently, it's one of the consistent, they live with less than what they could live with. They live more simply than their budget would allow. Which then frees them to be generous. The other consistent trait of a saint is someone who has every right to hate, every reason to hate but chooses to offer mercy instead, consistently. 
Saints fight for life without taking life. Saints are not neutral. They're not neutral. They're not both-siders. They stand for, for justice. But they will fight for that in a way that will not take others' lives. And in that way, they, they're inclusive, always inclusive. And, and with saints, you will always find a very mixed, eclectic crowd around them. Across labels will find their way to them. Saints. The world, the world needs saints. Now, if I, if I have to summarize all of these saintly qualities into two words, It would be the world needs saints, the world needs people full of courage and full of compassion. That's what the world needs most of all at this time. The world needs people who are full of courage and full of compassion. One without the other will not do. Courage without compassion will probably just add to the hurt. Courage without compassion will probably just add to the hurt. Compassion without courage will not be able to reach and heal the depths of the hurt. We need courageously compassionate people in the world today. The world will be saved by saints. The world will be saved by courageous compassionate people. Jesus was a courageously compassionate person. I know no other like him. It's for that reason that I try and follow him. Because that's what the world needs. Okay, let me back up now and go on a little excursion, a little detour, but hopefully we'll get back on the road. Over the years, we have lots of students come visiting from other countries, and somehow we see a memia, we're on the, the kind of stopover point, and you get students coming to see, you know, visit Africa, South Africa, and they're doing a course on politics and international relations, etc. So they've done a little studying of our history. And without fail, I get a question along the lines of something about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Without fail. And wasn't, wasn't that kind of just, you know, a, a failure? bit of a massive compromise. Um, a bit of a farce. Now, obviously, we know it certainly wasn't perfect by a long shot, has many 
failures, faults, not least that people are still waiting for reparations. But in reply to the students, I ask them the following. I say, how many are there of you? And they look around and they say, 19, 20, 25 of us. I say, good. Next question. How long have you been together? How long have you been traveling together? And they say, a week or two weeks. I say, well, how about you come back tonight and I will chair a Truth and Reconciliation Commission among you. And you can just take turns of coming up, sitting in the chair, and I will make sure you're not interrupted. And you just tell your truth about how the last two weeks have been. Just speak truthfully about how the last two weeks have been. Any volunteers? Consistently, group after group, there are no volunteers. And if there are volunteers, they happen to be black people in the minority in the group who have got some things to say. Now, isn't that amazing? 20 people, two weeks, no one's stolen anything from each other. No one's killed each other. We're not dealing with people who've killed one another. And yet, you just get together and speak truthfully about two weeks together. The courage that they need to do that and the compassion to be able to handle that is beyond them. And yet, we dared to do it for a nation over hundreds of years with much blood spilt and stolen goods yet to be returned. A saintly thing on a national level. Unheard of. Now, just as I put those students in the in the light, let us step into the light. You would have heard my sermon on Gaza and Israel two weeks ago. If you haven't, you can go and listen to it. Where I'm clear on what I condemn and what I am uh, stand for in that. But we must not misunderstand our condemnations. It's very easy to condemn from a distance. Very easy. Very easy to see clearly from a distance. It's like other people from around the world can see the injustices in this country very clearly because their lives do not change either way as a result of it. But when you've got something at stake, sometimes our vision struggles to see the truth clearly. So just because we can see clearly and condemn clearly does not in any way, it, it, it must not be seen as a judgment that we are better than or superior to. Let's test it now. How would you respond 
on the 8th of October, having had a member of your family whom you love, whom you brought into the world, who you had dreams for, how, how would you respond after the 7th of October? What would have guided your behavior? How would you act after 75 years of ruthless oppression, of living in, a, in an open-air prison? How, how would you react? What would you do? What would control your anger, your resentment, your bitterness? I think it would take a saint. Literally, it would take a saint not to respond to the two examples I've given you in retributive violence and vengeance. It would take a saint. An absolute saint. Someone who is saturated with courageous compassion. Someone like Michelle Halev, who we lit the candle for, who said, In my name, I want no vengeance. The reading from Revelation speaks of these saints, these saints. If you read the end of the reading, you get a sense of what these people have had to endure. It says, there will come a time where there will be no longer any hunger. So in other words, they've been suffering hunger. There'll be a time where they will no longer thirst. In other words, they have gone without water. There will be a time where the sun will not scorch them. In other words, they will have shelter. But they've lived without shelter. Oh, and there'll come a time where, where God will wipe away every tear. In other words, they've lived lives of grief. they the saints who've lived through hunger, thirst, abandonment, grief, and yet, and yet have continued to hold fast to the way of Jesus of courageous compassion. Now, you might have missed all the symbolism, but in the text in Revelation there, John, the author, asks, who are these in their white robes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb? And the reply comes, they are those who have endured the great ordeal. The great ordeal of 7th of October, of 75 years. The great ordeals they've endured. Now, the symbolism was that in those days, Roman emperors, when they became an emperor, 
they were dressed in a white robe. And above them was a tarpaulin. And above the tarpaulin was a beast, an ox, a goat, or whatever. And they'd slay the ox or goat, and the blood would fall onto the tarpaulin, and it would become a shower head, and they would be drenched in this blood. And that was the induction into not just emperorship, but immortality. And so what John the author is doing is saying, who are the true emperors of immortality? They are the resistors. The resistors who refused to take revenge but gave their lives instead. They're the martyrs of the faith, full of courageous compassion. Who had palm branches and on their lips were shouting, Almighty oh, blessing, wisdom, glory, and honor, which was the liturgy that emperors would receive, except they would conclude the liturgy with to, to, to God and to the Lamb. In other words, they'd shift the liturgy of immortality and, and lordship to Jesus. In the heat of this persecution, They, they chose vulnerability over violence. Now, if there's ever going to be peace in the Middle East, there are going to have to be people who choose vulnerability over violence. That is the hard, hard choice. And that choice alone can only ever be made by saints. No other... No other being makes that choice except a saint. Vulnerability. So go back now to where you were, those questions I asked you. Are you willing, are you willing to choose vulnerability over violence? Bring it home now. We live in one of the most violent countries in the world. The odds of any one of us being a victim of crime is, the odds in this country being a victim in crime is so much higher than anywhere else. Now, the person sitting next to you whom you love is now a victim of crime. The next day, what are you choosing? What are you choosing? Vulnerability or violence? Now, you've got, you've got to make the choice today, you see, before it happens. Because if you wait until it happens, I'm telling you now it's way too late. There are choices now to be made. You know the old story of the two children playing on top of the building? You know the one? And then they realize the building's on fire, Right? So one of the children just instantly says, hey, the building's on fire, and runs down the fire escape, gets the hell out of there. The other child says, flip, the building's on fire, and runs knocking on every single door from floor to floor, floor to floor. Fire, 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 get out. Fire, 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 get out. Fire, 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 get out. Both children made instinctive decisions, but they were raised differently. The one child was raised, look after yourself, child. You're number one. 
Now the child was raised, always look after others. Always look after others. You can't make that decision on the building. It's how you train yourself. And that, that is why I come here week after week. And it's actually what I long for. I must just say, I long for. Far more than this weekly stuff. I long for a small group of people who will hold me accountable to making decisions and practices on a daily basis that all the time I can be held to vulnerability instead of choosing violence. That's what we're here for. And that's why the Beatitudes are such an important reading for us today. And it gives me another opportunity to celebrate another saint. She, she died on the 6th of January this year. But in 1981, I read her commentary on the Beatitudes. 1981, I read her commentary on the Beatitudes. Mary Lokanowski. And she said... Blessed are those who know their need for God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They know their need for God. They, incom they know they're incomplete on their own. And they, they spend their life nurturing a relationship with the more, with the other, which the one we call God, creator. Blessed are those who mourn. You only mourn if you love. In other words, blessed are those who love their neighbors. And so she says the first two Beatitudes summarize the entire law like we heard last week. It's one commandment, love God and your neighbor. You can't have one without the other. And then she goes on and instructs how to love your neighbor. The first Beatitude is blessed are the gentle, blessed are those who are nonviolent. Blessed are those who go home today from this place and remove a firearm that we have in our possession for our protection. Blessed are those. And enable that firearm to be melted down so that firearm never ever takes a human life. Blessed are those who see the sacredness of life and will never put themselves in a position to jeopardize the sacredness of life. Blessed are those. And then blessed are the just. Because those who hunger and thirst for systems in the world that are just. And then blessed are the merciful because there are those who are wounded by the unjust systems. And you need to give yourself to the wounded to remind yourself again and again of the need for just systems. And then blessed are the pure in heart because you know that all the violence you're trying to change out in the world is actually alive in your own heart. So do some inner work. And when you're gentle, just, merciful, and pure, then you become a peacemaker in the world. And you're the child of God. And then just a warning, if you are going to be a peacemaker in the world, you're going to be persecuted twice over. And then you'll be salt and light for the world. You'll be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The light that may die... But others in the future will live from your light, just like the stars, long into the future.
They'll navigate their paths according to your constellation of courageous compassion. Let me close. One of my favorite uh, books and author, he, he did not live a saintly life. Graham Greene, prolific author, and he writes in such a way that one both inspires you to write and also intimidates you to never even begin thinking that you can write. But he wrote a book in 1940 called The Power and the Glory. The Power and the Glory. And it was a book about his time in Mexico in the late 1930s when Catholicism was being outlawed in Mexico by the Marxists in a state, what do you know, called Tabasco. Tabasco was a hot state of persecution and a very vicious state. Other states were kind of, you know, don't say, don't tell, that kind of stuff. But this state, they had a military presence there that was... Um, ruthless and searched for every priest. Alcohol was banned so that you couldn't celebrate the Eucharist. And one priest after other was caught. And if they kept their faith, they were martyred. But sometimes the state tried to get them to marry and so give up their vows of celibacy and no longer be a priest. Anyway, the main character of the power and glory, he's, not, he's unnamed. He goes simply by the phrase, the whiskey priest, which tells you something about him. The whiskey priest loved a drink, and he also had a child. And he lived his whole life believing he was a complete and utter failure in how he had failed his vows. But he kept on the run. And wherever he'd be, he'd hear a confession, he'd offer the Eucharist. And the book is this incredible tapestry of relationships of this faulting and failing priest that somehow is the presence of Christ among us, specifically the marginalized. He's finally betrayed by Judas' character, who plays on the fact that he knows he will come and hear a dying man's confession, even though it's a trap, which he does. Anyway, now he's in prison. Listen to his final words. When he woke up, it was dawn, he woke with a huge feeling of hope which suddenly and completely left him at the first sight of the prison yard. It was the morning of his death. He crouched on the floor with the empty brandy flask in his hand, trying to remember an act of contrition. 
O God, I am sorry and beg pardon for all my sins. He was confused. His mind was on other things. It was not the good death for which one always prayed. He caught sight of his own shadow on the cell wall. It had a look of surprise and grotesque unimportance. What a fool he had been to think that he was strong enough to stay when others fled. What an impossible fellow I am, he thought, and how useless. I've done nothing for anybody. I might just as well have never lived. His parents were dead. Soon he wouldn't even be a memory. Perhaps, after all, he was not at the moment afraid of damnation. Even the fear of pain was in the background. He felt only an immense disappointment because he had to go to God empty-handed, with nothing done at all. It seemed to him at that moment that it would have been quite easy to have been a saint. It would only have needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. It seemed at that moment to him quite easy to have been a saint. It would have only needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. Let's start with a little bit of restraint and a little bit of courage. We leave here today with just a little bit of restraint, whatever area we need to have a little bit of restraint in and a little bit of courage. Let's be quiet, and if there's anything saintly in these words, may they take root in our life. Thank you for Jesus, gracious God, the courageously compassionate one. And thank you for all the others, courageous and compassionate, who enlighten our way, even when their light no longer exists, but we see it still. May we give ourselves to those ways. Give us courage, please, to choose vulnerability over violence. Help us to make that decision today, the great conversion from violence to vulnerability. Convert us today. So give us a little bit of restraint and a little bit of courage. Amen.